0: This fall, we're going to continue that today, finishing up this first section of First Peter chapter one, uh, verses two through nine. Uh, that text is printed in the bulletin and uh, also up on uh, the screens uh, behind me. First um, Peter chapter one, verses two through nine. Uh, this is God's word, and we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, um, what uh, uh, we're going to look today uh, as we wrap up this section at verses eight and nine, talking about uh, the reality of uh, believing in one, trusting in one, hoping in one, enjoying one who's invisible. Uh, and we're going to uh, unpack that a, a little bit uh, more this morning. But that is one of the things that Peter finds marvelous about us. Uh, these people that he writes there in Turkey, these people who are, uh, uh, who've never laid eyes on Jesus Christ, but they've staked everything on him. They believe in him. Uh, and the very fact that they believe in him may cost them everything. They are being persecuted. They're dealing with struggles. And uh, as we will read, as we work our way through this epistle this spring, there are all sorts of things that are coming against them. And he wants them to know uh, that uh, what a a beautiful thing really it is that they trust in someone they cannot see. Now, you know, if you're like me, and, and I think this is the way most human beings are, we trust more of what we can see than what we can't see. We make judgments about what we see. Now, um, uh, Becky, you can go ahead and put my notes up there. One of the things that we've uncovered in our family, particularly with my daughter, is the curse of angry resting face. You ever heard of that? It's a thing. Look it up. It's a real thing. Uh, uh, There's some really... uh, Terrible stuff in the urban dictionary about it, so don't look there. But uh, they actually did—they actually did a thing on the Today Show about this. Now, what angry resting face is—is is that people we make judgments about people when we see them the first time, and if their face looks angry or just not very pleasant, we assume that these people are just mad all the time, angry, upset. Uh, And they're not the kind of people we want to be around. So she works. She has the best college job ever. She works in the library at the desk. And, and, you know, it's a great job because nobody goes to libraries anymore. I don't even know why we have them, right, in some ways, right? I mean, so she works at the desk. She gets paid to do her homework and occasionally hand stuff to people when they come by. And she says, you know, nobody ever bothers her. Nobody ever talks to her. And I said, well, you know why that is? She's like, why, because kids don't use libraries anymore? I said, no, because you're scary. <laughs> She's like, what do you mean? I'm, I'm just sitting there. She's like, well, look at you. She's like, what do you mean, look at you? You're like this. She's like, I'm happy. I'm like, sweetie, do people come up to you and ask you, are you okay? Are you mad at me? She's like, yeah, all the time. she's like, honestly, I'm not, I I don't have that, so, um, and I I didn't think it was a thing until uh, I was noticing in the the place where I work out that there's a girl who works in there who really has angry resting face, and uh, when I just see her walking around, it makes me run harder on the treadmill because... (laughs) And then I and then I thought, well, I'm going to try my experiment. I'm going to talk to her and see if she's actually, you know, what I'm seeing is not real. And she's, mm, you know, <laughs> yeah. It, it was. She's not as upset as her face looked. So. So the, so the fact is, what we the the thing that is amazing to me and the thing that amazes Peter in many ways is that that the, the, the fact is what we what we see and what they are seeing as struggle and persecution and difficulty and grief and hard things um, uh, seem to us to be more real uh uh, than this one that we we are trusting that we can't see, and these things overwhelm us at times, right? It comes at us in such a way that we think, "Oh my goodness, you know this 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 difficulty at work, or or this challenge in my family, or this disease in my body, or whatever seems to me to be more real, more uh, uh, I- I- impacting me uh, than this one who I can't see, the one." who seems invisible. So so what I want us to do this morning is to to talk a little bit about that, to get at kind of the nature of faith and the nature of what the Christian life really, really is all about. So Peter says uh, five things in verses 8 and 9 about his Christian readers and about us. The first one is that we love Christ. The second one is that we believe in Christ The third one is we rejoice in Christ. Now, let me just say this right now. You may be thinking, you just disqualified me because my love is cold, my faith is weak, and I don't have a lot of joy. My love is cold, my faith is weak, my joy is almost non-existent. Well, Here's here's the thing I would say about that is, um, thankfully, thankfully, the work uh, that Jesus is doing in us and this salvation that we are receiving, this thing that we are obtaining is a progressive thing. And the fact of the matter is he knows that about you, he sees that about you, and it does not repel him. In fact, it compels him uh, to... Uh, to pursue you in, in ways that are even more dramatic. And that's what we talked about last week, that it could even be possible that, that some of the difficulties that we're going through are the means that God might use to to uh, intensify our love for him, deepen our faith in him, and give us a deep and abiding joy that does not depend upon my circumstances, right? And so uh, the, the, the the thing about it is this is, This is what he sees in these believers, that they love Jesus, though that they they do not see him. They have joy in him, even though they don't see him. They believe in him, even though they don't see him. And so through all of this we are receiving the salvation of our souls. And and this word here for souls, the salvation of our souls is not just that you get to heaven, but it's a it's a bigger concept than that. That it means that what we are participating in and what we are looking forward to is the ultimate redemption of the cosmos where where the possibility of sin and death and struggle and suffering and and persecution and 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 temptation and all of those things are dead and gone once and for all. And then we are experiencing this even though we've never seen Christ in person. We've never seen Christ in person. Next slide, please, Becky. So uh, here's the thing Here's the thing that's so crazy about this, and I think this is one of the things that you have to, to, to unpack about this is. The fact of the matter is hundreds, maybe thousands of people saw Jesus. Saw him. Heard him, watched him. People saw him raise the the, uh, widow of Nain's son right out of his casket. People saw him in the synagogue heal the man with the withered hand. People saw him when the roof got torn off the house tell the guy on the pallet to get up and walk. People saw and heard him cry out to Lazarus to come out of that tomb. People heard him say, Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. And most of those people, the vast majority of them, did not believe in him. Okay? So this issue of loving, enjoying, believing in one that we don't see is at the very essence of our faith and is at the very essence of the nature of what our lives are based upon. So this is true Christianity. God is saving our souls by working in our hearts a love and a confidence and a joy that is against the stream of secularism and godlessness and worldliness in our society and most predominantly in our own hearts and lives. True Christianity is loving Christ and trusting Christ and enjoying Christ. In other words, Christianity is first and foremost a matter of the heart, Love, trust, and joy, not a matter of external performances. And Peter adds in verse 9, in this you are now progressively receiving the goal of it all, the salvation of your souls, the final full salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We are now receiving for our souls, in part, as we love Christ, trust Christ and rejoice in Christ now. So the fact of the matter is that because Jesus has come, because he's lived, because he's died, because he's risen again, and because he has promised to us that he will come again, and he has promised to us to bring to completion the work he has begun in us, the work he has begun in the church, the work he has begun uh, in this world, we, uh, we trust him, we love him, We follow after him because he is strong and powerful to do that work in us. So the fact is we are staking everything on someone who is invisible largely to us, right? Uh, And this is something that that you need to think about, that you are staking your life, you make decisions, you spend money, you do things, uh, you say things, you are about things, Because you believe that this stuff is real, that it's true, even though you've never seen him, even though you never heard him, even though you never touched him. The fact is, you're staking everything in your life, we are staking everything in our lives upon this one that we've never seen. And that is the wonder of this, and that's the majesty of the gospel. Because here's the thing. These people who've never seen Jesus, who are facing persecution, are entrusting themselves, staking everything on him. And that is so good. And that is so valuable. Because here's the thing. You would never do that on your own. You would never trust him. You would never believe him. You would never love him unless the work of God was happening in your heart and life. You would never do it. I don't care how rational the gospel seems. I don't care how evidentiary it may seem that the tomb is empty or whatever your particular bent is. The fact is people only repent. People only believe. People only change by the power of God in them that God reaches down these elect exiles as we've read about and he changes them and he gives them the ability to believe, to trust to love and to enjoy someone they've never even seen and stake everything on that. Now, you know, you got to be careful about uh, news stories and stuff like that. But apparently there were people in that classroom in Oregon this week who staked their last second on this. Amazing, amazing. So we're staking everything on someone who is invisible largely to us. In a sense, what we we do not see is more real to us than the very real struggles we experience. This seeing what is invisible, that Jesus has saved us, is saving us, and will save us is what life is all about. That's it. That's it. That, that, that though we do not see him, we love him. And he has centered our lives upon him. Now, this is something to me that is, 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 is profound. Because the, 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 the fact is, you know, because Jesus is invisible uh, and because life is so hard, there are many moments and perhaps most moments in my life where loving, enjoying, trusting might be hard to come by. And so I hear that, and I think, well, well, well really? What? What's going on here? Well, let me just challenge you to imagine your life without a hope of a resurrection. Imagine your life without a hope that there's a God. Imagine your life without a hope that, that there is more to this world than what you see. And in fact, God is at work in it, involved in it, loving it, caring for it, achieving his purpose in it, drawing men and women and boys and girls to himself and changing them forever. In a few minutes, we will come to the table of the Lord, and we're going to be led to the table of the Lord this morning by three uh, kids who profess their faith, And who are identifying themselves because Jesus has identified himself with them, with him, with the church, and by coming and participating fully in him by eating the bread and drinking the cup. Now, let me just say something about that because I know for many of you, you look at that and you think, that's nice. They're just kids. They're just doing it for some kind of peer pressure. They're just doing it because their parents made them do it. It's not real. Well, friends, it's happening in front of you. (laughs) What ain't real about it? (laughs) Right? Now... I had the opportunity this week to to talk with one of my dear friends, and he said, you know, I'm really struggling to believe this. And I'm like, well, I'm not struggling to believe it because I live in skepticism land. (laughs) I'm not even struggling, right? Why struggle to believe something? It's just much safer not to believe, right? So even when there's evidence sometimes that God puts in front of us, Because the fact of the matter is, it ought to move us beyond words that our God loves us enough, not just to come, not just to take on flesh, not just to die our death and to rise again and to promise to complete the work that he's begun in us. Not just that, but that he has come so far as to take my blind eyes and my cold dead heart and give life and light to my eyes and breathe life into my heart so that I can see and that I can trust. And when I am sane, acknowledge that my life would not be the same, my life would not be worth living without the work of God. And that I stake everything on it, even in my weakness and even in my pitifulness, I can cry out like we did earlier today to say, God, strengthen my shaky knees. Help me, because my help can only come from you. Next slide. So there's really some deep irony in this, and and pardon me today, I I realize that hardly a sermon goes by that I don't talk about Adam and Eve. I do that a lot, Uh, not just because I think It's really cool that we have Adam and Eve in the garden or anything like that. But there's just so much reality about those first three chapters of the Bible that work themselves out in our lives today. God made Adam and Eve. He made the world perfect. He puts them in the garden. And he says they can eat of any tree of the garden except that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Isn't that what everybody wants? I want my eyes opened. I want to know. I want to understand. I want enlightenment. I want to know the answers to how and why and when. I want to know. I want to see. I want wisdom. I want to be able to to understand why and how everything is happening. I want a unified theory of the universe that works 100% of the time that explains everything. And if I eat this, my eyes will be opened and I'll be just like God. And in fact, I won't need him anymore. Right? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the you know so much about seeing here, right? Delight to the eyes The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. So, this eye opening experience, this attempt at seeing independent of God, Independent of the way he made us, independent of the work that he is doing, independent of, of what he has revealed to us, led only to catastrophe and destruction. Right? And so the, the 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 fact is when when we seek to see, when we seek to make sense of the world without the one that we can't see, it always ends in shame and disaster. It always ends in broken relationship. It always ends in hiding as God comes and pursues. So what we want, what we need, what what God does is the kind of seeing that only he gives. Paul says this, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand and then in uh, his letter to uh, the church at Corinth, he says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So though we do not see him, we love him. Though we have never seen him, we believe in him. And he gives to us joy that is inexpressible, full of glory, because we are obtaining, because of the work he has done and the work he is doing, the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. So what is it exactly that I see? What exactly it is that I see is I see this one who walked this earth, who took on flesh, who loved me. I see this one who is for me. I see this one who has never, ever, ever reneged on his promise to me. Next slide please, Becky. In the gospel, the and the four gospels, we see his character, we hear his words, we see his heart, and we experience his power, right? And so so the thing that we that we 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 see here is as we as God opens our eyes and opens our hearts and enables us to take him at his word. As he challenges us and as he convicts us and as he shows us our sin and shows us his cross, as he makes atonement make sense to us, as we, as we look at that and as, as we see that, what happens to us is, is that we square that, those words, those things, with our experience. And we remember and we say, you know, God was faithful to me then. Jesus was at work in me then. Jesus was at work, in this person that I loved then. The fact is, we, we it's it's not just that we have the testimony of the Bible and the testimony of the Gospels and the powerful work of the Spirit convicting and convincing us. We have the experience that there is a God who loves me, who died for me, who is at work in my life, who is at work in this world, who takes people who are spiritually dead, who takes people who are spiritually blind, and... And by the power of his spirit opens them up and changes them forever. And that evidence, that work, that thing that he's doing is what Peter is just amazed at as he looks at the church and says, you never saw him. You never touched him. But you love him and he is at work in you. It is a powerfully Uh, encouraging thing for him. So all of this uh, leads to joy because Jesus provides hope in the middle of very, very hard circumstances. The Lord does not leave you alone in your circumstances. He sees it. He hears it. He is at work. He intercedes for you. And we have the promise that he will see you through to the end. And seeing you through to the end gets you to the place where there is no longer any pain or suffering or sin or difficulty or death. So there are two things about this that we have to that we have to ask, and that the scriptures answer, and that is, can people be changed? Now, notice I didn't ask the question, "Can people change?" Can people change? Um, I. I uh, and how you answer that question, can people be changed, would be a gauge, a barometric pressure gauge on how much joy there is in your life. Can God change you? Could he? Can he, can he change people you love? Can he do that? Can he? Even though we don't see him, this one we love, this one we testify to, well, we'll see evidence here in just a few minutes of people that he's changed. And can I experience joy even as I lament? Listen, the great news about the gospel is It doesn't deny the the reality of pain and suffering and difficulty and death and wickedness and terrible, terrible things happening in the world. It acknowledges that and it gives you permission in the midst of that to cry out to this one who is for you and who loves you and who came for you. But it also allows you to hope in that and to know that the work that he will bring to completion one day, and you'll see it, is a work that's ongoing even now. He won't quit. He won't quit. He is relentless and persistent in his loving pursuit of his people, and he will not let them go, and he will see them through to the end. So even in the midst of difficulty you can experience joy. I watched a man this morning walk up to the front of this church and take the body and blood of Christ and chances are it'll be the last time he does that in this building. He's dying. And as I watched that he came up to me out in the uh, uh, gallery by the coffee and said would you pray for me now there's a cancer in my lungs as well and so I got to pray with him he feels bad he's sick but he knows in whom He has trusted because he knows who has opened his eyes and breathed life into his heart. And even though he's sad about leaving his wife and his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren, he knows his destiny. You see... The fact is, the reality of the gospel, this one in whom we believe that is uh, that we have not seen, gives you joy beyond anything we could imagine because it is a joy that is achieved internally through the work of the Holy Spirit pressing upon us the truth and the promise and the goodness and the grace of God. Today... We come and we have...